Petersfield's Shine Radio. Hello, I'm Geoff Lacey. And I'm Claire Venice. Our summer holiday continues. As does our village reminiscing in this week's Peapod. If you love Petersfield... I love the square. The hangers. The open-air swimming pool. Lots of fun shops. Then the Peapod loves you. It's just a nice town. Everything Petersfield is in the Peapod with Claire Venice and Geoff Lacey. Thank you for joining us in the Peapod. We enjoyed visiting some of our local villages earlier this year so much, we're bringing you a second helping. This week, from Strood, East Meon and Rake. Susie heads to Sky Park Farm for a wild walk, but makes a rookie error. And just what you've been looking forward to, we'll play some more of our bloopers. We end this week's Peapod with a song called Thank You, written by Petersfield-based Wendy Cross, with music by Stuart Jebbett and Keith Dunstan. The P stands for Petersfield. Petersfield is special to me. The Peapod. Joining us now is archaeologist Peter Price, who is a member of Liss Archaeology Group and who has taken part in the Big Dig excavations at the Strood Roman Villa. The annual village Big Dig in Strood began at the request of the villagers, who were eager to learn more about the Roman Villa. And Peter is here to tell us more. Hello, Peter. Oh, good afternoon. Good evening, even. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, the villa is um, quite an old one. It was uh, probably about the 3rd or 4th century when it was built, but maybe even earlier than that, because there is evidence now that we're finding that there was probably another villa there beforehand. So uh, the villa itself is in fields just not far from here, and it was first excavated um, by the boys of Beedale School with their classics master in the 1900s. And uh, they found over a series of years enough to show us the entire um, villa itself. It's a courtyard villa, so it's a villa. It's got um, walls all around a central area and then it has gates at the front. And the, the building itself... Well, if you can imagine Petersfield Church, about that size and about that high as well. So a very substantial building in the surrounding area, but also surrounded by other Roman uh, buildings as well, because there's one nearby uh, Ridge Hanger Lane. Uh, there's another one just up the road, just where you mentioned at Langrish. And there's uh, also earlier material, probably... Iron Age or late Iron Age, Mustacombe Copse, for example, has got lots of banks and ditches, which are probably part of a, some kind of defence system that was part of the Iron Age. So there's a lot here. It must be very exciting to work on a dig such as this. Yeah, the first person in 2,000 years to touch an object never ceases to go with me. And even if it's just a chart of pottery, it's still inevitable that you go... Wow, that's a moment. Yeah, absolutely. What, what has been discovered in the Roman villa then? Well, the villa itself um, is probably the kind of villa that would have been a Romanised Brit, would have owned it probably. Um, its actual function is a question of debate. And when Moray Williams, who was the master who excavated in the 1900s, first excavated... He was unsure, and we still are, about what the villa was doing. The problem is that the bathhouse is twice as big as it should be, which begs the question, why do you need a big bathhouse for a modest villa? So maybe it's not just a villa, maybe it's something else. And he 
intimated at that time that there's a possibility that it could be part of a shrine area because within the complex itself there's an octagonal building about 27 feet in diameter and that could possibly be a shrine. So it may well be that what we've got is people coming to worship, maybe connected with some kind of water deity because there's evidence um, in, at the bottom of the field of a stream at the moment, but we think there was a, a fairly large pond there back in the Roman period or maybe just after. And it may well be that there were people coming to take water, which was a, a fairly standard thing in, in the Roman period. So what happens once the excavation is fi- finished? Has it, is the field closed off or is it, can people access it at all times? Uh, the, the original um, villa is now back under the grass. And the problem was that Moray Williams was trying to raise the money to actually have it encased in a, in a sort of building of some sort. So in 1910, when he was still trying to raise the cash, the Ordnance Survey actually came past and actually drew it onto a map so we know precisely where it is. And we did a, ge- geological, a, a geophysical survey a few years ago with permission from the uh, authorities to do it. And we found that it's absolutely identical to his drawings. So he was a very accurate uh, excavator, which is brilliant for that time, the 1900s. However, like most um, excavators at the time, they did what we would call in the, in the trade wall chasing. So you get a spit, which is, you know, a spade width, what's that, um, 12 inches? And you dig down either side of the wall and that's it. You don't open the rest of the site. So there is an entire site there which is dying to be reinvestigated. But, you know, because it's a scheduled site, you can't do that. But what we have been doing, as you said at the, with the intro, uh, we did a series of test pits up and down the village to see what the extent was, if any, of any Roman buildings. Um, I have to say that this end of the town, the further you go that way towards Langrish, the less Roman material there was, the further you go towards the Petersfield end, the more Roman stuff turned up in people's backyards. With regard to what we've been doing over the last few years, we found another nearby site, and I can't go into detail for obvious reasons about where it is, but we found several sites now. Um, We've excavated, and to answer your question, the site is still open at the moment, but we cover it every year. And then we will reopen it in the next couple of weeks, in fact. And then we'll go back into it and have a final look at that, and then it will be covered over permanently because the farmer wants his field back, he wants his grazing. Um, Andy Snow, you mentioned early, Andy runs his sheep on that particular field, so uh, we have to be very careful of what he's doing there. So the big dig takes place between the 2nd and the 31st of July. How many people will come along to join in with the dig? Um, We usually have about 18, 20 people per day coming along. And can anyone come along, or do you have to sign up for it? No, you have to be a member for obvious reasons. We we have a fairly large uh, insurance, so you have to be insured in case someone sticks a pick through your foot, or, you know, any any other sort of accidents. Uh, Therefore, you have to be a member of LIS Archaeology to do so. Um, And once you've paid your subscription, that's okay, you can can come along, provided you fill a few other things, like um, we have a minimum age of 18, um, the problem with that is that um, anyone under 18 can come, but they have to bring their parents with them. 
I was just to say, because my son, my youngest, wants to go into archaeology. Mm. So, um, yeah, he's, he's got loads of magazines. It's something I think he's really yeah. quite passionate about. So, um, so he's old? only 16. He's 16? Yeah. 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 Our problem is that we've had problems before with younger people. Um, it's not the fact that um, they've caused any problems as such. It's just that it's very difficult to supervise. Mm. Um, that's why we have a minimum age of 18 now. So what's the most exciting thing that you've discovered in one of these digs there? One of the very first digs that I was on, can I go back to 1972? Yes. <laughs> I found a gold earring. Did you? Yeah, um, from a Roman side. I was digging a Roman villa, sorry, a Roman fortress uh, and a part of a town in South Wales called Usk. And it turned out to be a very interesting one because I thought it was an earring. And in fact, it was sort of shaped like, you know those things that ladies carry around in their gardens and they put their hollyhocks in, like a sort of half-moon shape with a basket? It was a gold version of that, a tiny, tiny thing. And it turned out to be what you apply to a plait. So you, you sort of integrated into a plait. So whether it was a gentleman that was wearing it or a lady, I mean, this is a Roman fortress, so more likely to be a bloke, I would think. That was, that was exciting because that was the only gold I've ever discovered. I am the most unlucky archaeologist. <laughs> I have been to many places where I have taken people on, on tours and I said, oh, if you look over there, you'll probably, you know, have a look and see if you can see some Roman coins. And they come back with Roman coins. Have I ever found any? No. <laughs> Peter, thank you very much for joining us this evening. It's been really, really interesting. You're thank you very, very, much. very welcome. And just when you thought last week's bloopers couldn't get much worse, we bring you more. Peapod bloopers. So, how's the week been? We're back in Petersfield after two adventures out in the villages. Yeah, we brought our tents and backpacks back (laughs) from our journeys outside. They've been really interesting. I don't know about you, but I've really enjoyed going to the villages. And this is a plea to the other villages. Do get in touch. We'd love to come and visit your village to hear more about where you live, what goes on. And how we, and how. <laughs> I'll let you on do that. One yeah. <laughs> so please do just get in touch. <laughs> it's going well today. Yeah. Um, I'm sure you can edit all that together. Please <laughs> do. Susie heads out on her wild walk in South Harting on a gorgeous January day amidst happy memories. Today we're at South Harting. It is so glorious that I just wanted to share it with you. It's. At last, a beautiful sunny day with a clear blue sky. It's crowded with people, so it's like coming to a mid-station skiing, so let's all pretend that's where we are. Uh, It's Verbier. Who knows, I've never been there. Lots and lots of people. Cyclists have just passed us. Children happy. Boys throwing sticks into the pond to break the ice. It's all completely typical, and I really love that how absolutely glorious this is. Oh, ice and sun and crisp air. and It's after the rain. Thank you, Mr Wilde. Um, It's just wonderful. But, I mean, do, if you come to South Harting, bring crampons because it's very slippery. We're at the top now, looking down over South Harting Church, one of my favourite views ever. We used to come out here in the Morris Oxford. Um, 
KOT471 was the registration. Isn't it weird how you remember things? Um, with lovely leather seats, which I can smell now, and chrome polished, because Dad would do that. And it was, see how small I was, he was still at home. And he'd do that with a white cloth. But we stopped here to take it in. There was a sound of dog just at the beginning of this because there is something untoward that it was rolling in. Um, and so we're going to do a detour so that we don't go past whatever that was. Though rain's usually pretty good. But she's been maligned twice in the usual way. There was a, a sort of bird-watching couple. And she went to say hello, which is her won't. And they said, oh, she's looking for goodies. And... I wanted to say, well, you know, it's a dog. She probably could have been able to tell from the frozen pond that you clearly have no goodies on you. So <laughs> we're just in the splendour of South Harting. I mean, if you can hear that, that's rain going, would you please just get on with this walk? Yes, you, even for goodies, um, and have a lovely week. The first ever Petersfield Walking Festival is approaching on foot. This is Susie Wilde. The Petersfield Walking Festival includes more than 40 guided walks around our area and on the 27th of August you can join me in my Labrador rain for an easy walk from Sheet to Durley Marsh and then beside the river into Petersfield. Find information about all the walks including Shine Radio's Wild Walk in aid of the Rosemary Foundation Hospice at Home at petersfieldwalkingfestival.co.uk Support Petersfield's Shine Radio and the Rosemary Foundation in the Petersfield Walking Festival. Dogs are welcome and I hope to see you on Saturday the 27th of August. Coming up, we revisit East Meon and Rake Villages. But first, here's Joff. Peapod bloopers. This week, Susie is adventurous on a wild walk at Langley and meets friendly walkers with good dogs. Good dog. <laughs> 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 what was the name? Barbara Woodhouse. <laughs> <laughs> The P stands for Petersfield. It's a lovely area, lovely people, lovely atmosphere. The Peapod. In the 6th century AD, a people called the Mian from Denmark invaded central Hampshire. They settled and gave the river Mian its name. They also founded the village of East Mian. A farming village, East Mian is listed in the Doomsday Book in 1086, where the population was about 450. It's grown a little since then, and to tell us more about the fascinating history of this village, we're now joined by East Mian local Rob McCatter. Hello, Rob. How are you? Good morning. I'm very well. Thank you very much. I see you've, uh, you're on crutches. You yeah, I had a hip replacement five weeks ago, so I'm oh. recovering from that quite rapidly, very pleased to do Oh, that. that's good. That's good. Yeah. So, tell us a little bit about yeah, East Mian. Let's go back to one of the things you just said. One of the starting points is there were definitely people here beforehand. We have some Roman remains in East Mian. We had a, a dig site at Old Down Farm excavated in the 1970s uh, of a quite an extensive Roman villa. We have a huge Roman villa at Strood that the Lizzie Archaeology Society is excavating every summer. We've had some quite substantial finds in the parish of East Mian. And the other thing to note is the Doomsday Book was talking about the parish, not the village. The parish of East Mian was enormous. So it went all the way over to the, the, um, sorry, sorry, the Sussex border. It included the 
tithing of Ambersham. So if you go from Hazemere down by the Lickfold Inn, that was part of East Mearn. So when they talked about the East Mearn in the Doomsday Book, it was an enormous area. It included large chunks of Petersfield. It went all the way out to the Sussex border. So it was a very big area. And East Mearn as a parish was actually owned directly by the Bishop of Winchester. And it, the history of it goes back to about, um, I forget the exact date, Alfred, Alfred left the, the parish of East Mearn to his son directly in his will. And it then went back and forth, and basically it was owned by the Bishop of Winchester directly from about 1100, 1200 onwards. So it's had a very strong historic links with the, the Bishop of Winchester. Now you're a member of the East Meon History Group. How long have you studied the village of East Meon? Uh, well, I've lived here. I'm a newcomer. I've only been here 23 years. <laughs> um, the history group was started by Michael Blackstead. I should think probably around 20 years ago. And the first thing they did, they did, um, they investigated history of the houses. Michael owned a, lived in a house called the Tudor House, which was just the other, other end of the High Street. So Michael's very interested in the history of his house, and he, he encouraged others to research their houses. The first thing the East Main History Group did was produce a brochure about historic houses of East Main, of which there was eight or nine. And it was certainly one just behind us, Forge Sandwich, just over here, is one of the oldest um, houses in the village. So that was the first thing the history group did. And then on the back of that, they started organising a series of talks and lectures about local history, local issues. And that's probably been going for about 15 years. Uh, Michael uh, has moved out of the village and they were looking for a replacement. And I sort of, I, I'd been involved in the committee for a few years. And so I sort of half volunteered, half got volunteered to take over a couple of years ago. Very active. We have about six lectures a year in the winter from September to March fantastic well attended we often get 50 60 70 people come along to talks and we make them as local as we possibly can and how has the village changed since you've been here if you look at the east Mean in 2000 and east Mean today you wouldn't standing here you wouldn't be able to tell there's any difference at all from that 20-year period if you went slightly further back there's been some new houses built on the green um, there's there's been some incremental housing built in East Mere, but not a huge amount basically the, the village here you can see pictures from um, the photographs from the early 20th century you can see sketches from the late 19th century you can see some information from the mid 19th century this street here would look exactly the same if we'd been here 200 years ago the, the Mian might have been slightly different. It wouldn't have been um, enclosed in slightly the same way. But the, the house, the bulk of this housing stock has been here for several hundred years and quite a lot of it's been here for three or four hundred years. So the, the part of, this part of East Mian ha hasn't changed much for a very long time. And one of the reasons why in uh, 1986 Hampshire chose East Mian as their doomsday village was because it hadn't changed. The layout of, of the village of East Mian was almost exactly the same in 1986 as it had been in 1086 and, and therefore that's why the models done of the village of East Mere, that that model now is in the Bayer um, Tapestry Museum it's actually upstairs in, in Bayer in France and there's some fantastic uh, pictures of that model in the, the books the East Mere History Group has produced um, and it's well worth you going in Bayer it's worth going out and not just looking at tapestry but going upstairs and looking at the village of East Mere, the model that was done for the 900th anniversary now, there was also a workhouse in this village as well. There's Workhouse Lane, obviously, yes. telling the story there. Do you so know much about that? I can. There was whole, all, most villages had workhouses till about, and I forget the exact day when the poor law came in, let's say it's 1830 plus or minus five years either way. At that stage, all the parish 
um, workhouses were combined into a union workhouse. So all the, 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 the residents of, of, of that workhouse would be moved into Peacefield. So Peacefield had a union workhouse, the footprint of which is still there, it's just off Torway. So that would have been a union of about, uh, from memory, about eight or nine different parishes, including, I think, from memory, Rogate was one, so some in West Sussex, some around here, including Liss. So all that... Um, uh, those body of workhouses were combined so that the Eastman workhouse we don't know exactly where it was but clearly it was in workhouse lane and interestingly in the first census in 1851 the man who lived three houses long from here um, uh, in one of the two big houses uh, called Glenthorne he was the doctor who looked after the workhouse in Peacefield and he was a Quaker and uh, unfortunately that the records for the Peacefield workhouse are sort of lost and I was the members of Peacefield Society can't find them that it can't find the National Archives, so we've looked for them. But the implications when you look at the censuses for Peacefield are the workhouse, when the census was done, was never full. And therefore the implication is that maybe it was the fact you had a Quaker who was the doctor, the fact that you would, when you looked at the people in there, they were typically uh, mothers with their children, some people who were um, blind, some people who were elderly. It doesn't look to be at the extreme end of the 19th century workhouses. I'm speculating, but it look, the evidence we've got suggests that the peaceful union workhouse of which these men would have fed into wouldn't have been quite as extreme as the, the worst cases. And many of the workhouses in the 19th century England were, were appalling. It does suggest that the peaceful might not have been quite that bad. So what's the most fascinating bit of history that you found out about Eastmeon? If you ask historians that question, most historians are going to think about what's my period and they're going to focus on what they're interested in. Um, and uh, the typical, if you ask uh, most people who've studied history, I ask them a question, it, the typical answer is, oh, not my period, I don't know. So, <laughs> the, the, so the answer to your question is, I'm, I'm very interested in... Um, the records of Eastman. So the records of either the church records or the records we started having censuses in 1851. I've done a lot of work on trying to integrate those too. So I think when you when you start looking at the movement of villages, how the, the population of Eastman was very um, sedentary. The number of people born in the village who stayed in the village who were there from 1841 census, 51 census, six huge numbers of people didn't move. It was a very static population, and that was true for the farm workers. It was true for the people who were around the shops. It was true for the artisans. It was true for the landowners. It was a, a, a permanent population that didn't move much. And if they moved, they might have moved from Foxfield. They might have moved from Clanfield. They wouldn't have gone very far. So that's one of the things I found it fascinating about Eastman is the fact that it was a very set community where most people would have known each other and if you look if you look along the houses along here these all would have been tradesmen shops and the the, the Wilwright's cottage which is just behind us the Wilwright in the mid-19th century was a man called Smith who was also the sexton of the church and if you look at the church records he was a sexton for a church for about 60 years so every single marriage every single christening he signs because he's the man that has to sign the register. So it's that sort of continuity of East Mian. I find that fascinating. Are there any books about East Mian? I hate to say it, there are a very large number of books about East Mian. Thank you for that question. Um, one of the residents of East Mian was a um, peaceful lawyer called Freddie Stanfield, who in 1986 published a history of East Mian, which was taking about three years to research and write. And it was then reprinted about uh, 2004, 2005. And it's a fantastic local history done by a local enthusiast and a huge amount of work on it. So Freddie Stanfield's book was published twice. The Eastman History Group, we published a book called Farming the Valley three years ago, 
which is credited to the Eastman History Group, and, and it was written by several people, but realistically, Michael Blackstead wrote about 90% of it, so a huge amount of work. It's got fantastic pictures. It's available for One Tree Books, so go into One Tree Books and ask um, Tim for a copy. It's a, it's a really, really, it's something we're incredibly proud of. We got a lot of grants to help fund it. Huge amount of work went into it, but the maps, uh, which I, most of which I, I was very involved in creating, are very fascinated by the way Eastman changes over the years so that they're very um, worth looking at those those two books and you certainly get the modern one. The other thing we publish and you get copies, I'm going to leave some of them in, in the pub, is Guides to the Historic Houses of Eastman, which was the first publication of the history group and also we published, or we, not we, the people of Eastman have published two different books about walks from Eastman. So it was initially a short walk from Eastman and then longer walks from Eastman, obviously, and obviously it's follow-up, done by local residents. So those, again, are, are available. The shop still has some copies of both those two. So there's lots of ways of finding out in written form about the history of Eastman. It's been fascinating. Yeah. Rob, thank you very thank much you, for telling us more about it. Peapod bloopers. Petersfield's Bicycle Buddies will be at the Avenue Pavilion on Saturday the 20th of March between 11.15 and 2.30. Come and meet your local... Sunday. I say Saturday. You said Saturday. Oh, my word. It's hard work this week. <laughs> <laughs> Petersfield's Bicycle Buddies will be at the Avenue Pavilion on Sunday the 12th... Oh, my <laughs> word. <laughs> Petersfield's Bicycle Buddies will be... <laughs> you can't do it now, sorry. The P stands for Petersfield. I like going to the open air swimming pool and shopping. (laughs) The Peapod. Rake is situated north of Petersfield, and although most of the village lies within West Sussex, it also lies in Hampshire. The county border is drawn along the line of the B2070, through the centre of the village. And while this lovely village leads a quiet life now, in the 18th century, smuggling was rife in the region due to its easy links to Portsmouth and the English Channel. In fact, some say the area was practically lawless. Rake resident and church organist Leslie Lloyd joins us now with fellow resident Maureen Keel to tell us more. Hello Leslie, hello Maureen, how are you both? Very well, thank you. Mm. Yeah, fine. <laughs> <laughs> thank you both for joining us. Now, how long have you both lived in the village? Uh, 43 years. 43 years, and Maureen? It will be 49 in August. Wow, don't want to say that. Um, so how much has the village changed over the last 40 odd years or so? Well I'd say not an awful lot really but in the centre of the village it has changed um, because the pub over the way that was a pub and uh, it's recently uh, been turned into two semi-detached large houses I used to come here with my husband um, and we used to meet up with friends here, particularly um, New Year's uh, Day we'd meet up um, and at that time the licensee had a piano here and his wife could play and we used to sing carols and all sorts of things um, although it was New Year's Day or New Year's Eve. Um, and then we would um, all get together. Or we, we used to uh, have a fancy dress 
and we'd get together and we'd do the Congo all the way across the road <laughs> to the other pub. <laughs> it was great fun and then back we'd come again and still carry on with all the celebrating of New Year's Eve and it was, it was great fun. Yeah. Actually, when you were doing that, of course, this was the main A3. Yes, it was so the main so A3. Con <laughs> going across the road was a hazardous business, I Oh, well, think. they used to stop for us. <laughs> <laughs> well, was the A3 as busy then? It, well, not as busy as the A3 is yeah. now, because we're not the A3, of no. course, now, as you know, there's the bypass. But it was a very busy road, yes. Yes. But... Being New Year's Eve, you know, we waited until yeah. the traffic had uh, diminished a little bit, yes. Mm. That sounds great fun. It was great fun. So what brought you to the village of Rake 40, nearly 49 years ago? Yes, well, um, I was working at the time, so, um, well, we moved here. Uh, so I was out of the village quite a lot working, of course. Um, weekends I'd be at home, like most working mothers are um, so I wasn't involved a lot with the village um, certainly not until 1979 I became involved a bit more um, my children both my daughters belonged to the guides and the brownies and at the time the guide hut and village hall was just across the road opposite the existing village hall and it burnt down in 1979. Nothing to do with the guides or the brownies, <laughs> but they were the last ones in, so. <laughs> so um, that started a fundraising to build a new village hall. And um, that's where my husband and I really got quite involved. And um, the uh, land on which the old hall stood, it was only a, a, mainly a wooden building, that was sold for a building plot, so that gave us a start for fundraising, and then um, we did fundraising, we had the, the field over there which had been left to the village, it was a playing field, and so it was decided we would build over there, so all the fundraising we did were in tents, marquees, because we had no building, and we did that for two years, raising money and fundraising, yeah. Did all sorts of things, <laughs> under tentage, which was quite difficult sometimes, but we raised the money and people in the village contributed, and uh, we sold a brick um, for people who were interested, and Sarah Green, of uh, Blue Peter fame, she actually laid the first foundation stone and um, it was opened in, um, well, she laid it in May 1982, am I right? Yes. And it was more or less finished, when I say that, the building, not the interior, um, in the September. As far as my memory sounds to be right. <laughs> <laughs> but it's been great and it's been, you know, once it was all completed, it is a lovely hall. But um, that's, I did spend a lot of time with that. But it was great fun. And Leslie, how long have you been a church organist? Been organist in the present church, which is up, up the road here, for 41 years. 
I, I had played at the organ in uh, the place where I previously lived, which was in Kew, up, up in London. Um, I, I don't know how much longer I've got to play, probably not that much, I think. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but no, I, but my experience of Rake was a bit different from Maureen's. Uh, for my first 12 years here, I was, um, it was very much a dormitory place. I mean, I was up, up in London every day, uh, out, out of the village virtually most of the time, really. Um, and uh, spending normally about three hours a day on the, on the train, uh, which was not particularly a pleasant experience, but I had the opportunity to retire in 1991, and I've been retired here ever since. Um, the village itself has changed in, in subtle ways, actually, apart from the building of the village hall. But um, uh, when uh, when I was first down here, the place was bristling with admirals and generals all retired because we're near Portsmouth, we're near Aldershot, it's, it's a natural military area. Over the last 10 or 15 years that that has more or less gone now, I mean we're lucky if we can find a colonel or two now. You know. With the history of the village being quite colourful, shall we say, what do you know about the past and and the smugglers that you asked, used to either of you actually yeah. uh, well I, I did do a bit of research on it I've done quite a bit of research on historical matters but actually predominantly 25 or 30 years ago so my memories of what I did in fact <laughs> a, a week and a but no smuggling was um, uh, I mean it's a natural place I, you know we're halfway between Portsmouth and London halfway between the south coast and, and London and it's you know you get it's a natural route for smuggling, and smuggling was big, big business, very big business. I mean, the people who actually were really running it were actually wealthy people up in London and the aristocrats and things. Uh, they obviously wouldn't wouldn't get their own hands dirty doing it, but they were profiteering from it. Uh, also, the clergy were quite uh, extensive customers of the smugglers. smugglers. Uh, it, it was mainly mainly brand, brandy and wine. Uh, I, I, I haven't seen any reference to, to tobacco smuggling in those days. In fact, I don't think there was probably any duty on it then. So, um, but um, there's all sorts of stories about it. I mean, the little chapel where I've done quite a bit of work up the road. As they always say, well, there was secret tunnels and I think rubbish. Nobody's going to build a tunnel up there. Um, but um, so there are all sorts of stories, and the, uh, there was a particularly famous series of incidents involving um, smugglers and the, the murder of two two people too. And it, uh, it was very well doc documented. There was nothing glamorous about smuggling. They were very very nasty p people, actually very very violent. I mean, it paid them to intimidate everybody along the routes where they where they went, so that nobody would dare say anything. Um, and they were vicious. It's quite interesting that the village has uh, a county line almost running through it. It is, yeah. It yes. used to be right. Yes, I was going to mention it. Yes. So it's one leg in West Sussex and one leg in Hampshire, <laughs> and it ran through the bar. Yeah, yes. when, when I first moved here, it was the line was, was right through the middle. Yeah. And to the point, going back to the smugglers' days, the sheriff used to come into, um, say, from Hampshire, 
and the highwaymen that would come would be arrested would literally step over into West Sussex so they couldn't be arrested and, and vice versa. So that would have all happened in here in years gone by. I love that. That's a great story. <laughs> Thank you, Mooring. Thank you, Leslie, for joining us. Our pleasure. See you very soon. The P stands for Petersfield. It's like the best town ever. <laughs> the Peapod. And so we come to the end of this week's Peapod. Thank you for joining us. Thanks also to our guests, Peter Price, Rob McCatter, Leslie Lloyd, Maureen Keel and Susie Wilde, as well as to the volunteers at Shine Radio who support the show and help to put it together. We end this week's Peapod with a song called Thank You, written by peaceful bass Wendy Cross, with music by Stuart Jebbett and Keith Dunsden. So from Joff and I this week, bye. bye. Thank you for being there. Thank you for being you. Thank you, love's everywhere. Thank you, I love you too. When things are bad and the sky is grey, think of all the words I say. When I'm sad, I'm feeling down. I know you'll always be around. When things are good and the sky is blue, I think of all the things we do. From the laughter, the giggles too. When I want to say to you Thank you for being there Thank you for being you Thank you, love's everywhere Thank you, I love you too When you were small and we had such joy Loving funny girls and boys Watch you grow from sea to foul seem like us thank you for being there thank you for being you thank you loves everywhere thank you i love you too time is going by so fast i want these memories to last Petersfield Walking Festival is approaching on foot. I'm Susie Wilde, and Rain and I will be joining Walk 42, Walk with Wheels. It's an inclusive walk for disabled and able-bodied walkers with no styles, gates or steps. And I'll be joined by John Wellsman and his guide dog. 
I may have my latest canine partner with me too, if she bunks off school. Petersfield's Shine Radio and the Petersfield Walking Festival. Come and meet us all on the 26th of August.